I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Page. I'm Page, your caffeine-imbued host. Here's my caffeine. In the beginning, coffee and low, it was very good. Today, we're going to start our excursion into Galatians chapter 1. But I want to start off by asking a question. Have you ever been challenged by someone who is not qualified to challenge you on something that you are a subject matter expert in? I have. And uh, that's why I can identify with Paul's opening five verses a little bit. Um, Let me share a story. I used to teach music appreciation and music theory in a classroom setting. In this one class at the beginning of the year, the class was coming in for the first class of the year. Now, this is an important time for me as I always keep my eyes peeled because every year there's always one. There's one student who wants to run the show that wants to be a ringleader. There's one student that's going to make trouble and you have to identify who that student is and then you have to deal with him quickly so as to set the tone for the rest of the year for him and the entire class. In this music theory class, this young man comes in and he's wearing a hoodie and he had a baseball cap with an unbent uh, brim cocked off to the side. Uh, Dark sunglasses, you know, from the hood. Which was silly because he wasn't from the hood. He comes from a very upper middle class family with a nice big house. But, you know, that was just his thing. So he came in and sat down. And he tilted his chair back, and without saying, hi, how are you, he just said, you know, mom and dad say I have to take this class, so I'm here. But when it comes to music theory on a scale of 1 to 10, I'm an 8. Now, you have to know this about me. I don't brag about what I know. Uh, I don't wear it on my sleeve. I don't go around talking to everybody about how much you know about this thing or that thing, as in music theory playing bass or guitar. I I just don't brag. It's stupid. But that doesn't mean I'm lacking in confidence or that I lack confidence in my area of expertise, which is music theory. That's, That's my thing. Something else you need to know. I have an inside voice and an outside voice. By that I mean I have a voice on the inside that nobody else hears. It's in my brain. I have an outside voice, which is the voice that everybody does hear, and my inside voice, upon hearing what he said, went, Huh, so you're the one. Kid, I'm going to crush you like a grape. But my outside voice, and this is the voice that keeps me employed, said, Well, that's an interesting observation. So what you're saying is that if I ask you ten questions, you're going to get eight of them correct. He said, Yep. My inside voice goes, Oh, kid, you are on. 
But my outside voice, remember, the one that keeps me employed, said, all right, let's pretend we have a C major 13 chord that you're looking at. How many triads can you pull out of a C major 13 chord? And if you can, tell me what their names are. He just stared at me and went, what? I continued, all right, that's one, nine to go. All right, you know what a C major scale is, right? He said, yeah, of course. I proceeded, take the median degree of the C major scale. Make a new major scale off of that note. Now take the sub-median degree of that new scale and tell me what the name of the chord is that is built on that root note. He looked at me and said, what? I said, yeah, that's two. So you're telling me you're going to get the next eight questions correct? He just stared at me, defeated, a little deflated, and said, no, I suppose not. I said, alrighty then, take your cap off, take your glasses off, put your chair back on the floor, and let's have class. And we went on. Now, he's a good kid. He was a great kid, but he was just not qualified to challenge me in this issue. As my dad would say, he brought a knife to a gunfight. Well, this is kind of what Paul faced with these people who would come in after him. Okay, it was a practice. Paul would go and establish some churches. He'd move on to the next place. Then these people would come in after him and accuse him of not being an apostle and teaching wrongly about the Christian faith. These people tried to tear down everything he did after Paul had left town. Pretty brave, huh? They had a two-pronged attack like we talked about in the introduction. Uh, their two-pronged attack consisted primarily of let's attack what Paul teaches by just saying he's wrong. And then they attacked the person of Paul himself and his qualifications as an apostle. So let's talk about Paul for a second. He wasn't appointed by the folks in Jerusalem. Who did appoint him? Well, we find it in the opening verse. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. To their accusation that he wasn't a real apostle, Paul would say, you're right. I wasn't appointed by John or James or Peter. I was appointed by Jesus Christ himself who appeared to me. He appeared to me and assigned me the task of taking this gospel that I'm preaching to the Gentiles. You see, Paul was given this task by Jesus himself. Oh, he wasn't assigned this task by the folks in Jerusalem. When did this happen? Well, I surmise that it happened in Damascus on his way to persecute the Christians, where he was struck to the ground and approached by Jesus himself. He had a face-to-face -face encounter with the risen, resurrected Jesus, and then for three days he was blind in Damascus until God sent somebody to pray for him to relieve him of his blindness. So what did he do for those three days? Well, I'm guessing after he got over the shell shock of that, uh, that initial encounter, he prayed. And he taught. there's a lot of talking with Jesus going on those three days. He was in the middle of a supernatural conversion, the, like, the length and breadth of which hardly anybody has ever experienced since. Then it says he preached in Damascus for a little bit. And they had to sneak him out of town because he raised a whole lot of trouble. And then he was gone. He was off the grid for 10 to 14 years. Where was he? Well, initially he went back to Tarsus. Then he spent some time in Arabia. 
And it says that three years after this event in Damascus, he went to Jerusalem to speak with James and Peter. Now, we're going to talk more about that. But he never once asked permission to preach to the Gentiles. He didn't go to Jerusalem to ask permission from James and Peter. Hey, I want to take this news to the Gentiles. What do you think? No, he was doing it already. So he wasn't appointed by or sent by James or Peter. He was appointed and sent by God. So this opening statement is a real forceful statement. Paul's going, guys, James didn't send me. Peter didn't send me. I'm an apostle, an appointed representative. But who appointed me? Jesus did, with the approval of God the Father who raised him from the dead. That's where my authority comes from. Paul fully met the requirements. He was appointed by God himself. That's what an apostle is, an appointed representative. So their argument is not with Paul in the end. Their argument is with God himself. Then Paul goes on to say, And all the churches and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, the gospel formula was still in its germinal form. All right, The, the church has only been around for maybe 10 or 15 years by this point, and they were just starting to gather their doctrinal core of what this new faith stood for and, and what, what doctrines it contained. At this point, the basic core theology of Christianity addressed the source of authority in religion, the person, the character of God, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection, grace, and peace. All well and good. But Paul now adds a statement affirming the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ and its outcomes in delivering humankind from sin. He adds the substitutionary death of Jesus to what everybody else had already agreed on. And when Paul writes this, notice that there's no indication anywhere of man's involvement at all. It's all God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of God the Father. Man isn't involved in this process. The law isn't involved in this process. This opening salvo is pointing at these people who are trying to steal the church out of the work that God and Paul had performed there in Galatia. They were trying to teach the church that you needed the law to complete the work of salvation in your life. No. Paul just got done saying, there is no room for law or man in it. Paul is an apostle, but he's not appointed by men. And the gospel he was sent to preach has no room in it for the law to be part of it. Now, the law does have a purpose. We're going to see that later. We're going to find that out later. But keeping the law is not a requirement for your justification. Now, there's something about else about this whole salutation in verses 1 through 5, which is kind of unique. Most ancient letters, Paul's included, follows a formula. Uh, you open with a salutation containing the author's name. Then you have the name of those you're writing and an expression of good wishes. Paul's opening here does that. But in Paul's other letters, he usually tags on something nice about the people he's writing to, something favorable. That's what's surprising about this letter. There is no expression of praise for the churches in Galatia, which is a normal procedure in his other letters. This opening salutation is concise in its brevity, and it contains a hint of anger. 
Paul's not playing. He's not playing games at all. These people have attacked his authority in the body of Christ. They have attacked his teaching, the ministry given to him to teach to the Gentiles by Jesus Christ himself. Paul is angry. I get the sense that the brevity of the salutation is short so that Paul can get right to the reason he's writing them. Paul is going to now turn his attention to the issues at hand, i.e. the false doctrine and these false teachers. Paul is ready to go to battle. He's had enough. Mm. Powerful five verses. I'm Paige. Here's my coffee. And it's still very good. I'm out of here. Have a great day. Bye-bye.